The Bible is an immense book, right? I mean, just look at that. Right? that is, unless you are a very, very serious reader, this is far and away the longest book you have ever read cover to cover, right? It is an immense book, and yet the essential message of the Bible can be summed up in just a few sentences, Right, 1 Corinthians 15, 3 and 4, Paul says, I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that He was buried, and that He was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures. Or John three sixteen, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whosoever believeth in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Mark 1, 15, Jesus said, Repent and believe the Gospel. Right, th- those brief statements summarize the essential message of the Bible, how we can be saved and made right with God and have our sins forgiven. So why does the Bible need to be so long? If the message is so short and simple, why is there so much else in the Bible? Or, to narrow it down a bit, why, as we study the book of Romans, as we've been doing, Why does it take Paul so long to get to the gospel? I mean, how many weeks have we been preaching through the book of Romans? We haven't gotten to the gospel yet, hardly, right? Why does it take so long? Why spend so much time talking about things that are not the gospel? Why spend so much time talking about the law? And why spend so much time talking about sin? This morning, we're going to look at Romans chapter 3, verses 19 and 20. And these two verses bring to an end the argument that Paul began all the way back in chapter 1 and verse 18. Ever since chapter 1 and verse 18, all the way down to chapter 3 and verse 20, Paul's argument is this. All people fall short of the glory of God because they all have sinned. All people, Jews and Gentiles, all places, all times, all people are under the power of sin, and as a result, they are subject to the wrath of God and the judgment of God. And these last two verses of that argument answer the question of why we have so much space devoted in the Bible to the law, to uh, pronouncements against sin. They help us explain why we have Deuteronomy, why we have Leviticus, why do we have so much space in Romans, so much space in Scripture devoted to what the law says about sin? Why do we need all that? What purpose does all of that serve? What function does it have? And as we answer that question, it helps us answer another question. Why have we spent so much time on this in Romans? Why has Paul spent so much time on this in Romans? Why have we spent so much time on this in Romans? What is the purpose of the law? Why not just cut to the chase and get right to the gospel? Why do we need all this? That's what Paul is going to answer for us uh, here in Romans 3, 19 and 20. So let me read these two short verses for us. Paul says this, Now we know... That whatever the law 
says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. So here's what Paul's going to say in these short couple of verses. Paul is going to say that the law speaks in order to shut every mouth before God. He is going to say that the law is not able to make anyone right before God. And he is going to say that the law's purpose is to show us our sin. That's what the law is for, and that's why it's here. Now let's look at how he says this. Notice he says in verse 19, We know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law. Now who are those who are under the law? It's not the Gentiles. The Gentiles didn't have the law. Those who are under the law are the Jews who were given the law of Moses, who entered into a covenant with God at Mount Sinai, where they took upon themselves the burden, the responsibility of keeping the law that God gave to them through Moses. And so Paul's saying, whatever the law says, it speaks to the Jews. It says that to the Jewish people, right? So he has just given us a litany of quotations From the Old Testament. Now, they're not from the law of Moses, but law can mean just the whole Old Testament scripture, too. That's what Paul means by it here. He gave us a litany of quotations from the Old Testament, demonstrating, claiming that there is none righteous, no, not one. There's no one who does good. There's no one who seeks for God, that all have turned aside, that everyone's become worthless, their throat's an open grave, and so on, right? He is, he is, uh, thrown down the gauntlet, right, and said, this is true of everybody, Jews and Gentiles. They're all under sin. But then he comes back and says, now, understand, I know and you know that what the law says, it says to the Jews. Right? So you might have some Gentiles come back and say, well, Paul, that's a really powerful string of quotations you just gave us there in verses 10 to 18, but... That's not, that's not my book. Those aren't our scriptures. That's not talking about me. That's speaking to the Jews. That's telling the Jews about their sin. How does that then speak to me? How does that then prove your point that you made in verse 9 that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin? Well, Paul says it works like this. Whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. So when the law speaks to the Jews and says there's none righteous, no, not one, no one seeks for God, no one understands, and so on, when it says that about the Jewish people who had the law, it says that, in order not only to silence the Jews before God, but also to silence the Gentiles before God. You say, well, wait a minute, how does that work? It works like this. The Jews were given privileges that nobody else was given. No other people were given. They had the promises of Abraham. They had the law of Moses. 
They had the prophets. They were given the scriptures. Remember at the beginning of this chapter, uh, in verse 2, Paul was asking the question, you know, what advantage do the Jews have? In verse 2, he says, much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God, the word of God, the scriptures. The Jews knew things about God and about his work in the world and about what he expected people to do that the Gentiles simply did not know. They were not told. They were not given those advantages. So here's what Paul says. If the Jews were given all those advantages, were given the scriptures, were brought into a a certain level of relationship with God, they heard God speak from Mount Sinai, they heard God speak through the prophets, they got a taste of what God's kingdom was supposed to look like through uh, the kings that followed God's law. If the Jews who had all those privileges from God still could not keep the law. Do you think you could have done any better? That's his point. If, if, the, if some of the Gentiles want to say, wait a minute, God, I know I didn't live up to your expectations. I know I didn't you know, live how you created me to live. I know I sinned. I know I did wrong. But, but if you had just told me more, If you had just showed me more, if you had just done this, if you had just done that, he can just point to Israel and say, I did do that for lots of people. You know how many of them it made a difference for? Zero. How many of of my own chosen, privileged people are righteous before me because of all the advantages I gave them? None. None of them has kept the law. You think you would fare any better? No, you wouldn't have. Right? Now, if we were talking about a handful of people, you might say, well, you know, those guys are not the best examples. You know, maybe some of us could do a little better. Well, we're not talking about a handful of people. We're talking about generation after generation after generation. We're talking about people like Moses, who saw God face to face, or spoke with God like a man speaks to a friend face to face, who saw God's uh, hind parts, as it were, and, and glimpsed the glory of God and heard God speak and reveal His character. Even that Moses couldn't keep God's law. Paul's point is, as the Scriptures, through Moses and the prophets, as the Scriptures proclaim the sin of Israel, they silence everybody else. Israel couldn't do it, and neither can you, and neither can I. That's the point. The point is that no one can stand before God and say, if you'd only done this, if you'd only told me that, I would have responded differently. I would have been better. I would have lived. No, no you wouldn't have. No, you wouldn't have. Right? One scholar puts it this way. He says, if the Jews who had the privilege of being God's covenant and elect people couldn't keep the law, then it follows that no one can. That's Paul's point. It speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped. And then he says, and the whole world may be held accountable to God. Now, when he talks about, when he says be held accountable to God, normally what we think of when we hear the word accountable is just that we have to give an account. We have to give an answer. But there's probably more than that going on here. One uh, scholar says this, the, the picture intended to be evoked by this phrase accountable to God 
in this context, he says, is probably that of men standing at God's bar, God's judgment seat, their guilt proven beyond all possibility of doubt, awaiting God's sentence of condemnation. So here in this context, we're talking about more than, you know, we have to give an answer for how we've lived. Here, Paul's point is not just that you're going to have to give an answer. His point is, you're not going to have an answer to give. You're going to be called to account, and there's going to be no excuse that you can muster for how you lived, for what you've done, for the sins you've committed. No one's going to get off. No one's going to be able to argue their way out of this. That's what he's saying. The law speaks to the Jews, convicts the Jews of their sins, so that every mouth, Jewish and Gentile, will be stopped That everyone will know there's no excuse they can make. And the whole world be brought before God, arraigned, right, before His judgment seat, pronounced guilty. Deserving a verdict of guilty. This is what the law is for. The law is there to silence our objections to God's sentence pronounced against sinners. Because apart from Christ, we are not good. Apart from Christ, we are not righteous. Apart from Christ, we are not godly. And our circumstances, our opportunities, our privileges or lack of them are not to blame. We are to blame. That's Paul's point. The problem is not outside of us. The problem is inside of us. We are under the power of sin. That is why we need Jesus. That is why we need the gospel. That is why we need a righteousness that is outside of us, that can be given to us, because we cannot produce a righteousness on our own. Only Jesus was able to live a perfectly righteous life. And unless His righteousness is given to us, we're never going to be righteous. We're never going to be in the right before God. But that's what the gospel proclaims. That those who turn from their sin and trust in Christ, they are given the righteousness of Christ. They are counted by God as though they had lived Jesus' perfectly righteous life. And that is where Paul is going next in the rest of chapter 3 and into chapter 4. And he's been driving us to this point so that we will come to recognize there is no other solution. There is no other way for us to escape the judgment of God. There is no other way for us to stand before God accepted, righteous, forgiven, welcomed than through the gospel of Christ. It's just not going to happen any other way. Now, Paul gives us two more reasons in verse 20 why that's not going to happen, why that can't happen. The first one is that the purpose of the law is not to provide a way to be justified. How many of us, at one time or another, have thought of uh, the Old Testament law this way? Well, God gave Israel the law to see if they could keep it, and it turned out they couldn't, and so then God came up with another plan, right? 
the plan of salvation by grace through Jesus because turned out nobody could keep the law. No, that's not how it worked. God, God knew that Israel would, could not keep the law, and he did not give them the law as a ladder they could try to climb to earn God's favor and earn righteousness. It was never even intended for that. That was not the purpose of the law. Paul says here, verse 20, By works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Nobody is going to be right with God because of something they have done. Not even because of a list of things that they have done. Nobody is going to be counted righteous before God by doing good works. It's not going to happen. Paul uh, emphasizes this in the book of Galatians, in chapter 2, verse 16. Listen to the repetition in this verse, right? When you really want somebody to get something, you repeat it, right? If you want your kids to get something, you know saying it once is not going to cut it. You've got to tell them again and again and again. Paul does that for us. Galatians 2, 16. We know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one will be justified. Right? you get it yet? Nail it down. Paul wants us to nail it down. Nobody, nobody is going to be righteous with God by works, by what they've done. That's the most common misunderstanding of how the judgment of God is going to work. So many people think that they're going to be able to stand before God and say, I know I did this and I know I did that, but look at these other things that I did. Right? I was a good neighbor. I did this. I showed kindness this way. I was, you know, I got my kids through high school and all that kind It's not going to work like that. Nothing you do, nothing you do is going to make you measure up before God. Nothing you do is going to make you righteous in God's sight. It just doesn't work that way. God didn't design it that way. God didn't give the law for that purpose. It's not going to happen. Why is that not going to happen? Why does he say that no one's going to be justified by works of the law. Well, look at the last part of verse 20. Since, or because, through the law comes knowledge of sin. This is what the law is for. The law is not for making you righteous. It's for showing you that you're unrighteous. That's why it's there. The law, God did not give us the law so we could go, whew, doing pretty good. That's a list I can manage. I can handle that. I can do that. I can check off all those boxes. No, he gave us the law so that we would say, woe is me. I'm undone. Think about it this way. Jesus said the two greatest commandments are to love the Lord your God with all your heart and soul and mind and strength. How are you doing? How are you feeling about that? And then, to love your neighbor as yourself. Feel like you got those nailed down? Feel like you're doing that? No. Those commandments 
don't are not meant to say to us, this is all you have to do. You can climb this ladder. It's not even very tall. It's very simple. No, those commandments are meant to come to us and say, you are broken beyond anything that you can repair. You, You are not what you are meant to be. It ought to be the easiest thing in the world for you to devote yourself totally and wholly to the one who created you, who sustains you, who upholds you, who loves you, and you can't do it. You can't. That's what the law is meant to do for us so that we will get on our knees, literally or figuratively, so that we will experience the brokenness that comes with the knowledge of our sin, and so that we will cry out to God and say, I am in need of mercy, I am in need of grace, I cannot stand before you on my own two feet, I need you to pick me up and put me back together and make me right, because apart from you, I am lost. That's what the law is for. That's why Romans 1, 18 to 3.20. So that when we get to verse 21 and Paul begins to unpack the good news, we know how desperately we need it. And we're prepared to receive it and rejoice in it and give glory and praise to God who would uh, come up with and provide such a full and abundant salvation through the death of His Son because we know that there's no other hope for us. No other hope for us. So the law is not a ladder. The law is a mirror. The law helps us to see how lost we are, how broken we are, how sinful we are, and that's why no one can be justified by obeying the law, because that's just not what the law was for. So then you might say, well, can we throw it out now? It's showed me my sin. It's pointed me to the gospel. I've got the gospel now. Do I still need the law? Do I still need to go back to Deuteronomy? Do I still need to go back to Leviticus? Yeah, you do. You do. And one of the reasons why is verse 21. I'm just going to lean into this a little bit. I'm so excited about these verses. Verse 21. He says, But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. That's good news, right? Because the law can't make us righteous. We need a righteousness that's apart from the law. But then notice this. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. So not only does the law show us our sin, the law also begins to show us the gospel. The law begins to point to the way that God is going to make us right through the death and resurrection of His Son. It points us that way through Abraham, as Paul's going to show us in chapter 4. It points us that way through David. Through so many pictures, through so many events, through so many pronouncements, through so many promises... All throughout the law, it is not only showing us our sin, it is also pointing us to the gospel, to the coming of Christ. That's why we need the law. That's why we need this thick book, right? To persuade us, not only of Israel's sin, 
that ought to stop our mouths. Right? If Israel can't do it, we can't do it. But also to show us our own sin. But not to leave us in our sin, but also to show us that from the beginning, even before the law, God was preparing to send a Savior, a Redeemer, a substitute, a sacrifice, one who would completely and perfectly fulfill the law, so that in Him we would be perfectly and fully righteous before God. God wanted us to know from the beginning that there would be no other way. There would be no one who could stand before God and boast before Him of what they've done as though they had earned their place in God's kingdom. Outside of Christ, there is only condemnation. But in Christ, there is full salvation. So put your hope and your trust not in yourself, not in what you have done, not in what you hope to do, Put your trust wholly and totally in Him and what He has done because in Him alone there is no condemnation. Let's pray.